This is Radio Siams, a podcast of the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. Our mission to probe the critical debates in archaeology and conversation between leading practitioners and the next generation of researchers. On May 2, 2019, archaeologist Dr. Eleanor Casella from the University of Tasmania met a panel of SIAM students and faculty to discuss the archaeology of institutional confinement, the material dynamics of social relationships, and the role of historical archaeology in both the academy and also contemporary Tasmanian society. Dr. Casella joined us from across the globe, participating in the podcast via video call from Tasmania, so please excuse any audible feedback on this episode. It's time to think things over. Stay tuned for Radio Siam. Hi, I'm Dana Bardolf, the Hirsch Postdoctoral Associate in the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. We are gathered here for a podcast discussion on May 2nd, 2019. Our guest today is Eleanor Casella, who is currently an adjunct professor with the University of Tasmania School of Humanities. Professor Casella has directed excavation projects in Australia since 1995, focusing specifically on heritage sites associated with the British imperial transportation of men, women, and children to the Australian penal colonies. Her specialist subjects include the archaeology of institutional confinement, household archaeology, and the material dynamics of social identities. Our discussion today will focus on three of her publications, a 2000 World Archaeology article, Doing Trade, a Sexual Economy of 19th Century Australian Female Prisons, a chapter from her 2012 volume that she co-edited with Barb Voss, Archaeology of Colonialism, Intimate Encounters and Sexual Effects, titled, the fabulous title of Little Bastard Felons, Childhood Effect and Labor in the Penal Colonies of 19th Century Australia, and a 2016 historical archaeology article, Horizons Beyond the Perimeter Wall, Relationality, Materiality, Institutional Confinement, and the Archaeology of Being Global. We're going to be asking Professor Casella some questions related to her work represented broadly across three articles. Welcome, Eleanor, from across the globe. Good morning. And good evening from us here in Ithaca. <laughs> start off by asking you a very general question. So you've been working on these issues with Australian penal colonies and, and the associated themes that come across in these articles for several decades now at this point. So I'm wondering if you could speak to our listeners a little bit about how you got into this work and what really attracted to you working on these particular themes that are quite specific in some ways, but also, as you point to in your recent historical archaeology, a really sort of global way of thinking. So just a little bit about the history of your involvement in, in this project to start us off. So originally, um, and apologies if there's any feedback here, um, so originally, when I started doing my PhD at Berkeley, um, I was working with Jim Deeds, who, you know, as an historic archaeologist, was developing work in a comparative way. So looking at um, settler societies, you know, Euro European uh, imperial cultures, and how do they move out to the rest of the world, and their influence and development in encounter with indigenous societies. So uh, that was starting to take a bit of a comparative approach. And at the same time, I was also uh, supervised by May Conkey and Tringham. And they have a, a huge focus on gender archaeology. So I um, 
by virtue of my, uh, ignore the accent, my Irish passport, <laughs> I get a working holiday visa to Australia. Um, and uh, I was interested in this, you know, whole spread and sort of development of English settler cultures. Um, and I had a working visa and I was invited out <laughs> to Australia. So I just literally kind of shoved myself and my passport and a bit of clothes into a backpack and kind of went to a strip to learn about archaeology. Now, when I got here and volunteered for every single project and anybody who would have me, <laughs> um, it became really clear quickly that this kind of story is one of the epic stories of the myth of Australia. So, um, at the time, I had been invited down to Tasmania, or Van Diemen's Land, as it was known in the 19th century, um, to do literally just a volunteer project, one of their kind of backpacking, hikery, kind of world heritage wilderness areas. But while I was down here to do that project, um, the uh, state uh, uh, historic archaeologist invited me to come and look at one of the sites they, a park service, had under development. And it was a um, it, 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 uh, it was a paddock in a field <laughs> that they had just acquired as historic land, and they didn't know quite what they were going to do with it. And so the state historic archaeologist basically kind of sat me down and said, "If you want a PhD project, here's a women's prison. What are you going to do?" Um, so I literally went back to Berkeley, told Megan Root, "I've got a women's prison. How <laughs> And, um, yeah, like, they both went, yes, that is the most amazing PhD project ever. Mm -hmm. And so then I kind of redesigned, you know, second, third year moving onwards of my PhD, you know, focusing around this amazing site, because there's only once in your life you're going to be offered that kind of a golden opportunity, really. And it completely ticked every single research box that I'd gone into grad school to, to look at. Wonderful. Thank you. So my name is Sarah McCulley. I'm a first-year master's student here at Cornell in the archaeology program. Um, and I've encountered your work in several different classes about colonialism and generally about feminist archaeology before, so it's really exciting to be here and to get to talk to you. Um, and I guess to sort of kick off more of the questions, I'd love to ask you about um, the general themes of institutionalization and the, the dynamics of resistance and sexuality that you've really identified and traced materially there. And I think you've researched and published on other um, prison contexts as well, like um, POW camps in the Civil War, Japanese internment camps in the United States. And I'm wondering if you've seen um, similar dynamics of that kind of resistance playing out in different institutionalized contexts, or if there's something really different about the way that it's playing out in these female prisons in Australia. That's um, that's actually a completely timely question because um, one of my own PhD students and I are writing a chapter right now um, for uh, Luanne Dicanzo, one of her publications, um, and. In that, uh, PhD students and I are looking at comparatively at different types of institutions, you know, to see what are social themes across places like hospitals, asylums, prisons, right? So it's very forefront in my mind, actually, right now. Um, I, th I think, I think ultimately, um, 
there are certain dynamics of institutionalization that kind of act as a what an umbrella, um, a sociological umbrella over that experience of, of, of living and working in an institutional space. That said, um, different types of institutions operate very differently. And prisons, in some way, kind of the uber institution, um, has those dynamics of um, segregation, classification, um, you know, of, of, of um, what uh, enacting, in, in, in you know, the things of punishment and deterrence and rehabilitation, right? Those operate very consciously and differently in a prison. Uh, which is not a happy space, <laughs> compared to something like um, my PhD student Linnea's work on uh, mental asylums um, you know, in the 19th century, which she and I have had debates about, like they're far more ther therapeutic kind of um, you know, environments. So you have similar um, what, uh, social experiences you know, of it being an institution, and yet, there is a need for care and rehabilitation and kind of medical practices that don't exist someplace as bleak as a prison. You know, and certainly when you start getting into like um, POW camps, again, not all POW camps are going to be the same. So, for example, in my um, institutional um, confinement book, it is kind of um, complicated to get my head around how like a POW camp in the American Civil War going to be really, really different and operate differently, you know, socially, materially, than something like, you know, the Japanese um, uh, camps, you know, that operated during World War II. They, they operate with different functions, you know, there's different intentions, there's different responsibilities, you know, there's a time difference as well, obviously, archaeologically, right? But also the entire point behind these places, you know, operates differently. I don't know, is that, have I answered that question? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think being able to compare all of these contexts, which are maybe similar on the surface, but have very different dynamics going on underneath would be really interesting. Well, and also ultimately just jump in with Shireen's work. I was going to say that um, I was thinking about your, your different examples, and right now I'm looking at uh, prisoner of war camps in the North during the Civil War, and there really was a big difference in the way you were treated if you were like in a camp called Elmira, uh, which was the Andersonville of the North, but that was only for enlisted men, whereas there was another camp that was just for officers and they had it really quite cushy. Their families were sending them food and clothing. And so this whole thing of class and status and economics is also played out. Did you find that in your, uh, I'm, I'm thinking in terms of even some of the American prisons where some of the mafia people were in, they had all sorts of advantages and extra support? Did, did you find that in your prisons, that if someone were of a higher socioeconomic class, there was a difference in their treatment? But, um, gosh, I could totally respond in three different ways to that question. That's a great question. Um, okay, so, so um, uh, yes, um, I, I think we're... Um, 
Part of why I like working at institutions is because I think it boils down to a very human, you know, very stark point, the whole questions of, of intersectionality, right, and, and how multiple forms of social identity are all kind of intersecting and operating together, but through, you know, a, a very kind of clear material world, material social worlds, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, so, one of the things I found fascinating with, um, with, with, your, with your work, Dream, um, was um, I could kind of start teasing out, I thought, you know, in my humble opinion, materially, mm -hmm. a difference in colonial America between the Dutch sense of almshouses mm -hmm. and an English sense of debtors' houses. Mm -hmm. And materially, archaeologically, you know, the signatures that you were finding and publishing in your work were really, really different than some of the materials that were coming out of um, some of the English-based colonies. Absolutely. And I think, I think, I think that, you know, in my humble opinion, again, like I've been living in England, in this time of Brexit, um, <laughs> there, there is a real difference between a concept of poverty and citizenship and belonging to society, right, that plays out in the American colonies between the Dutch-based colonies and how um, that sense of being a good burger is being different than being a citizen in the English sense. So your responsibility to construction of a, a responsible social world is really different in the Netherlands mm -hmm. than it is with the English, and very different than the Spanish, which is part of what this whole Brexit you know, fight is mm -hmm. all about. Um, so, so I we found that materially. I think you found that, and again, looking from this like higher kind of comparative perspective, right? Um, you could see that in the material culture where sites that you were looking at, right, had more of like um, hand-me-down, family, domesticated, you know, like you know, in a sense, I want to call them normal ceramics, right. but like stuff you see in a domestic table, right, mm -hmm. um, which were handed down and donated. By the good burgers of you know New Amsterdam, right? Cool. Whereas you, know, you just go a few miles over into the Boston border, and suddenly they're buying institutional ceramics, mm -hmm. right? This is where they're intentionally going and buying, you know, like um, matching tablewares that are owned by the institution, not by the individual. Mm -hmm. And there's a shame that's involved in going and entering into a workhouse. And it's a begrudging donation that's done, you know, by by the state rather than individual families. So there is an entirely different what um, social aesthetic that's right. going on that translates into that material world. And that's why the signatures of these two different places, even at the same period of time in colonial America, you know, look different. So that that in itself I think is a kind of um, Sort of cultural vector, you know, into this intersectionality. That, at, on top of that, there are huge differences in how, even if you take prisons as a microcosm, mm -hmm. there is a very big difference between like female prisons versus male prisons. Mm -hmm. You know, how women deal with space, with social relations with each other than men do. And again, you can see that kind of materially in the sort of spaces, the architecture, the way discipline is actually played out in, through material worlds. Mm -hmm. On top of that, then, again, is a totally different vector, and I don't mean like on um, top like a hierarchical way, but just right. in terms of like intersectionality and different vectors you know, that we go into that is complicated, right? There is massive class shit going on. There is massive class stuff going on. Mm -hmm. So you're going to get 
Um, you know, in all these environments, you're, you know, mafioso, you're going to get famous prisoners, the political prisoners, the people who have access to, you know, that kind of wealth, social capital, economic capital, right? They're going to be treated really differently than your bog standard prisoner, just as a given. <laughs> who can bribe a guard better, right? Mm -hmm. So where do you start finding material culture kind of trickling into places? So I think we're looking, you know, definitely in a, you know, um, in, I mean, we've all been on digs, ladies. When you're in a, <laughs> you're in a materially limited environment, I'm going to call it a materially limited environment, right? Weird things suddenly become really valuable. Whether that's, you know, white paper or, you know, Sharpies. <laughs> Coffee, yeah. fresh coffee, right? Mm -hmm. Fresh coffee become really valuable, right? Mm -hmm. And so you're going to get a trade relationship, and then it starts playing out into who has access to resources, who doesn't. How do you mobilize different types of intersectional identities in order to get access or limit access to whatever you know the desired objects? And that can be you know a material object, a sexual object, a, a social object, right? You know, how, how, how do people mobilize, you know, their resources in order to get there? Mm -hmm. Hi, um, my name is Taylor Carr Howard. I'm also um, an archaeology master's student here at Cornell. Um, and reading your Doing Trade, a Sexual Economy of 19th Century Australian Female Convict Prisons alongside the Little Bastard um, felons piece raised several questions for me. Um, in particular, in the Little Bastard Felons piece, you ask um, how emotional bonds shape material worlds. Um, and I was wondering if you could comment on how you're seeing, or if you are seeing, um, emotional bonds in um, this sexual way outside of this um, trade-based sexual economy that you know in the doing trade piece. Well, in the, yeah, no, look, in a lot of ways, right, when um, Barb Voss and I kind of set up that, that, that book, the, the whole book, right, started off as a WAC, a World Archaeology um, Congress um, conference session, right, so she organized it, had, I don't know, um, 20 different participants who presented on colonialism and questions of sexuality and emotional connection, right? Um, and that was back in uh, Dublin. It was the WAC Dublin 2008 conference, right? So then we wanted to flip that into a book. So um, I had the absolute privilege to a number of our um, participants to Stanford where we did a um, three-day writing um, sort of session, you know, like workshop kind mm -hmm. of thing, right? Which is where that book comes from. So that book is the, what, distillation of a combination of like a conference session plus a massive, like enclosed in a room writer's workshop, right? So it was awesome because we could all just kind of workshop our papers together. So long answer to your very good question. When I did the earlier um, Doing Trade article, I was particularly interested. I, I was faced with a whole bunch of historic writings, um, you know, snippets of, of the female convicts and, you know, them mostly being written about, but snippets, historical documentary snippets of, like, um, their life inside these prisons. And I also had 
a whole bunch of illicit artifacts that were showing up in like the solitary cells, you know, on the site that I was excavating, and stuff that should not have been there, according to every bit of prison regulation. Okay, so how is this stuff getting there? So I was trying, in a good Jim Deetsy kind of way, <laughs> to merge the historic record with the material record to see where they do and don't correlate. And if they don't correlate, why? Right? And so that's where doing trade really came out of the fact that we were finding buttons, innocuous artifacts, mm -hmm. in the strangest places, <laughs> literally the strangest places. So as an archaeologist, if I'm finding a cache of 15 men's buttons, you know, between <laughs> sandstone flags, <laughs> right next to where the assistant superintendent's quarters are, something weird is going on with those bloody buttons for somebody to have stashed them underneath giant flagstone, right? Mm -hmm. So that gets you thinking about, like, what social relationships are actually creating that material signature? Why, why you know, in a very um, Mary Douglas way, why do we have, you know, like, dangerous objects, right? <laughs> What's up with these dangerous objects? Okay, so that's, that's where Doing Trade article came from. So skip forward, you know, like a number of years, too many years. I feel very gray right now. Um, so, <laughs> skip forward a number of years, and I had been excavating the nursery ward at the St. Prison. And Barb and I were doing this, um, you know, conference session and then book, right, on these kind of effective, you know, emotional sexual relationships, right? And in talking to her, part of what stigmatized female convicts in this particular penal environment, in this penal colony, right, part of what stigmatized them was the fact that they got pregnant, right? So the nursery wards are actually like complicated areas of these prisons, as they are even modern prisons, right? So I got materially interested in trying to explore what are these effective material relationships beyond just Sexual, right? If you're going to have colonial relationships, then you have to deal with the fact that people have children off the basis of those relationships. Mm -hmm. So therefore, it is, I, I have argued, you know, the, what, umbrella spectrum of what happens when you have, you know, sexual affects and, you know, <laughs> emotional encounters. So that, that was part of why I ended up exploring, you know, that kind of parental maternal relationship off the back of, in some ways, as a, what, sequel. <laughs> to what they were doing in, in the trade article. This is Sarah again, and I'd love to jump off of that point to explore the Little Bastard Felons article a little more, where you talk a lot about um, the, the consequences that both the mothers and children faced as a result of, of living in these facilities, often the forced separations, uh, sometimes used as a bit of a, a disciplinary technique and uh, also the, the inability of a lot of, of this institution to provide adequate care for um, the numbers of children that were in those settings. Um, and I, it really got me thinking about the current sort of political crisis that the United States is facing at the moment with um, family separations and confinement on the um, Mexican border. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts about the impact of, of research like this on um, more modern contexts in that way. Well, I mean, the more things stay the same, the more they change, and, and you know, vice versa, right? You know, 
I mean, one of the things I have always found fascinating is, you know, specifically for um, Tasmania, right, which, which was founded as a penal colony. Like, I cannot stress enough how much um, this was a penal colony, right? Um, so, like, I found um, watching The Handmaid's Tale absolutely <laughs> chillingly, frighteningly apropos because it basically, like, you know, those red centers in, in, in The Handmaid's Tale, that is a female factory. Like, the whole dynamics of everything going on, you know, the checkpoints, the fact that she's sent out to, you know, a private family and fostered there, like, that is basically what, that template is what operated here for the first half of the 19th century, right? So, I think this, in answer to your question, absolutely chillingly bizarre that uh, the first generation of white settler Australians, like 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 Australian-born white settlers, were primarily growing up in orphans' institutes. That is completely strange, as you know, a foundation for a society, British company, right? And it means that Australians have a very particular and very 19th century relationship to what institutional life, institutional cultures, you know, that uh, I don't know that other British colonies simultaneously, you know, um, British colonies experienced. And I think it's one of the things that makes, like, for example, you know, New Zealand and Australia very different places. They're kind of, you know, Southern Ocean cousins, but they're really different because materially different, socially different, because, you know, New Zealand was a, um, a free, settled society. Australia was always a government society, you know, with people who had grown up in orphans institutes. It's, I don't think it's an accident, too, that, like, um, I think after Wyoming, Australia was the first country in the world to give universal female suffrage. And it was because these women owned land. So you're an Irish woman in 1840, and your choices are starving to death in a bloody famine, right? And you will never own land because you legally cannot, right? Because you're the property of your husband. Or you set fire to a few farms, right? So, you know, <laughs> maybe, you know, no human death. Maybe a sheep got a bit scared, but you burned down your landlord's wheat a couple times, right? Mm -hmm. Get your ash down to Australia. Serve a few years in a female factory, right? You're clothed, you're fed. You, know, you can hook up with some nice guy or woman. Anyway, you hook up with somebody, and then you get a land grant, and you can actually own property and land in a business in your own damn name, mm -hmm. right? But 1901, when Australia federates, when it becomes its own country, right, they have to give universal female suffrage because, you know, a ton of their landowners, property owners, are women. Mm -hmm. So you can't disenfranchise them. It's also the first country in the world to have a literal legal status of de facto. So in Australia, there's always been a kind of legal status of de facto, which means, um, what, legally married, common law, but not married, right? Mm -hmm. And it's because, again, like, you know, these people are being shipped across the platform, right? They may be married in Birmingham or Liverpool or Dublin or whatever, mm -hmm. right? But they're never going to go back there again. So what do you do with your bastard children? You cannot have humans and a society in any legal sense with all of your new settler Australians as orphans and bastards, right? Mm -hmm. Their society has to start creating categories to manage and legalize these kind of, you know, social property relations. So Australia has always had, you know, a de facto, cat uh, literally a de facto category.
Does that answer your question? I don't know. Yes, definitely. <laughs> Absolutely. I think America's going to be coming their heads around to some of the whole Trump and the border and all of that. You know, I think I think there's there's going to be a really interesting reckoning because you know uh, uh, history proves society it's very expensive to deal with a bunch of kids who are stuck in cages. It's really like the most expensive way to deal with social problems. Right, so you know there is going to be some sort of financial reckoning, some social reckoning on this. Can't come soon enough. Well, so this is Narissa Russell, and I am a professor of anthropology and archaeology here at Cornell. Um, so, and, and I work in deep prehistory, as you know. Uh, so. Um, I, I just, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I work with those bones. Um, so particularly, I think, in reading the uh, relational materiality article, the uh, 2016 one, um, was making me think, as you're talking about globalization, so I was sort of thinking about my understanding of historical archaeology as sort of an outsider to it. And... Uh, what you know, I, so sort of my paradigm is you had Sophia the the days of when it was the handmaiden of history, and mm -hmm. then then I think it's more or less Mark Leone who said no, we're going to be the uh, archaeology of capitalism, mm -hmm. and I'm wondering if you still think that's what it is. And as I was wondering as you were thinking about globalization, is that does that still wholly define historical archaeology, or um, or are there other ways to think of it at this point? Just a small question. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'll find capitalism for you there, Nuri. <laughs> um, okay, what's my take on the whole globalization and the Mark Leone question? Um, right, so um, I, I think in the subdiscipline, um, historical archaeology has kind of uh, matured, <laughs> I'd like to believe, over, over the years. Um, and um, I think... I, okay, first of all, straight up, England made me a Marxist. Um, <laughs> in living in the north of England and watching the dynamics that led to Brexit, you know, over the last 20 years and watching as an outsider, watching all of that unfolding um, has made me appreciate the capitalist model on a whole new, very real level, right? Um, because access to resources really, really does define societies on a very, very deep, very real level, yeah? Um, now that said, I think uh, someone like Leone um, has been a bit, uh, what, um, what's the word, instrumentalist, uh, determinative around it, right? Because um, how people respond to limited resources is different in different situations. You know, people's ability to mobilize access to resources, material resources, social capital, you know, cultural, the people's abilities to mobilize that um, is really different depending on the context, you know, of who they are and where they are, right? Menu of options that they can kind of pull from. Okay, so what does this mean for historical archaeology? I think um, one of the, what, issues or topics that's always excited me um, was this question of globalization, right? Because objects that are created, you know, in like Stoke-on-Trent, an hour away from where it's living in Manchester, right? These ceramics, right, are being shipped around the world, and it's the same bloody objects, right? It's the bloody willow pattern, it's like a <laughs> fungus of archaeology. <laughs> <laughs> and 
I know. <laughs> Narissa scoops that shit off and kind of gets down to the real. <laughs> the rest of us who have to worry about the fungus on the top. <laughs> you know, it's, I, I find it fascinating. Now, that said, right, um, those objects which are mass-produced um, don't mean the same things in every context at all because, you know, humans are accessing them, using them, socially mobilizing them in completely different ways. And yet, at the same time, there is a resonance that connects them back to bloody Stigon Trent, you know, in the Midlands of England, because they're all manufactured there. So globalization fascinates me because we're looking at this tension between um, very, and, and particularly in the context of like my prison, which is where I started thinking this out, right? It is at simultaneously a giant open paddock. So I stand at the top of it and I look out and you know, it's a never-ending landscape, and I'm thinking about England, and I'm thinking about objects, and I'm thinking about all these people moving in, and the flow, and, you know, infinite variety of things there, and yet it's still an enclosed prison, right? So, with, um, with that particular article, what I was trying to do is think about how places can be connected but enclosed at the same time, hmm. and... Um, I'm also fascinated with how usually with the big boys, you know, and their big kind of globalization research models, it's top-down, right? It's that yeah. Marxist top-down. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what I was trying to do was theorize a way of thinking about these big questions, you know, of global capital, of shifts of people and objects across huge space, right? But think about it from the objects moving outwards, right? So you're starting with your piece of willowware. And moving in almost concentric pond circles, you know, piece of willowware into ever increasing kind of spheres, you know, meaning, you know, and, 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 and sort of, you know, value, right, from the object into the people. Why is that there? What can this object tell me about ever bigger stories of movement, knowing that this bloody piece of willowware was made in Stoke on Trent in England, and yet I'm digging it up on the other side of the bloody planet, right? Mm -hmm. So how do we think about globalization? And this is probably actually where I'm really influenced by like, you know, Ruth Tringham and her kind of microarchaeology that she's gone on about. What happens if we actually flip, flip the whole thing over? So we're not thinking about, you know, globalization or, I don't know, domesticated animals. <laughs> Hello. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the Touché, yeah. We're not thinking about it as a kind of massive technology top-down that's imposed on societies, but we're actually starting with the little tiny object, right, and then thinking outwards in circles from there. And does that change the way that we're actually thinking about objects, and therefore change the way we're actually thinking about how globalization works? Uh, Dana, again, in terms of thinking about some of these issues related to globalization and what objects mean, that might be moving across and very far-flung contexts and interactions. I'm wondering what your thoughts are about implications of this type of work if we're thinking about the archaeology of indigenous people that are in similar types of spaces. I mean, not perhaps not so similar, but spaces of confinement like missions or other forced labor encampments where it's a different dynamic in terms of a subjugated indigenous population in contrast to, say, these women where perhaps it was somewhat of a choice or had some degree of agency if they did decide to set fire to you know that, that field of wheat and then be able to be transferred across the globe. 
um, and be in a situation where then eventually after serving in this period of confinement, then you know be able to, to own land and have, have rights and things like that. But how, how might this type, type of archaeology and this, this thinking globally apply to situations where we have subjugated indigenous people and possibly even in Australia too, which is a fascinating area that's grappling with you know multiple colonial legacies of indigenous enslavement in addition to these types of dynamics that you, you look at in your work. So I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. You know, people like Jane Leiden or, you know, Bart Voss even, you know, um, uh, Steve Silliman, you know, have worked more closely on some of those mission sites, right? Mm -hmm, that's um, what I was thinking of, sort of Silliman's work and Voss's, and yeah, absolutely. But, I mean, ultimately you're looking at, you know, an imposition of a very a very 19th century and very, very modern Western you know, social format, social, you know, architectural format, the institution, and you're imposing it, or not you, but, you know, it was imposed upon, you know, a society, a group of people who had no reason to relate to this completely weird Western, you know, social format. They suddenly, the kind of live inside, you know, navigate and work through, right? Um, along with then all of the kind of objects, you know, everything from like gun flints to ceramics to, you know, clothing, uniforms, whatever, you know, like textiles, you know, like all of this sort of material culture that suddenly dumped onto them, right? And, you know, how, how do these folks then, um, yeah, navigate these kind of worlds, right? But then also, how do these worlds completely transform the folks, you know, on both sides who were there. I guess um, people like Amy Clark and yeah, Jane Leiden, you know, have worked a lot. You know, Al, Al Patterson out at um, University of Western Australia, right? They've all been working on um, colonization not so much as, you know, uh, what European powers that kind of dump and impose themselves around the world, which, I mean, they definitely do, not to minimize that. Very brutal, brutal process. But, um, there is also a process of encounter. So it changes both sides of this equation, right? Like the settler communities are completely changed, you know, at the indigenous are. Totally unequal relationship. Like some people had more of a genocidal, horrible experience, other people didn't. I am not meaning it's equated at all. I am not saying that, right? But I'm just saying, like, Australians are really different than English, or different than Americans, or different than Kiwis. Right, or very because you know partially because of the environment, you know the the, the um, encounter, you know the thing between societies. Okay, so given that that is a kind of social model, right? Um, because they are different cultures now. Um, why, how, and what does the material world mean at those moments of encounter? How are you know, indigenous communities and settlers both navigating this new, weird relationship with each other and the material culture that they have to now cope with together, right? So that's, again, what I meant with, um, you know, the question about my, um, my paper about the horizons beyond the perimeter wall, right? How do we start with these material worlds and move outwards from them in a kind of micro-scale moving that increasing with large ponds to start thinking about how the same piece of willow pattern means something completely different in 1820 Cape Town than it does in like, you know, 1840 
prison in Tasmania, you know, or 1870s New Zealand, right? Like they mean different things. How, what, and is that moment of encounter between, you know, Native Americans different than the encounter with Aboriginal Australians? Absolutely. And just sort of in, in follow-up to that, because Australia is so different, I'm curious how the people of Australia today view this part of their history, what these topics that you've worked on, so that people, in, in essence, being descendants of people that lived at these penal colonies and sort of what that means to them as part of contemporary Australian identity, which is also caught up in some of these tensions with respect to indigenous Aboriginal identity in Australia, but sort of how, how people see see their history as, as a product of being descendants of these people and, and anyone that you've spoken with about, about your work there, what their sort of response to it has been. There's um there's really interesting sort of um, what um, division um, or what uh, separation of um, archaeology in Australia between three different kind of subfields. There's prehistoric, there's historic, and then the maritime, right? And these worlds have different societies. They don't talk to each other much. They're starting to talk a bit more, um, but but. Um, yeah, they don't really communicate together um, extremely well, and they've got very, very different intellectual traditions. They're not often taught in the same departments. Um, so, so in terms of the historic stuff, and, and again, I'm speaking specifically for Tasmania because it's always really important in terms of Australia to, to remember that they were separate colonies, mm -hmm. so only separated together as a nation in 1901. So it's a very, very young country and a national sense of a country, right? So, um, yeah, very, very different traditions. So I'm specifically speaking about Tasmania, which is a completely independent colony than New South Wales or Victoria, right? Mm -hmm. So Tasmania, because this was one of the, after New South Wales, Sydney, this was, you know, the second earliest colony in Australia, um, and because there was this massive, ugly history of, of complete genocide, you know, on um, the Aboriginal population, you know, the, the native Tasmanians, right, um, or indigenous Tasmanians, right, so, um, and there is a negative of complete genocide, right, except humans are always complicated, and there are always sexual effects, and, you know, so there is a Tasmanian um, indigenous population. Uh, when I was doing my PhD work, I was in a really weird um, kind of uh, legal bind, uh, which is so unbelievable Tasmanian, where I had to get a permit, a legal permit, through the Parks and Wildlife Service, um, and that had to be signed off by the Tasmanian Aboriginal Land Council, except <laughs> had not recognized any Aboriginal people because officially the last Tasmanian was a woman named Triganini who died in 1890, and then her body was like shipped off to, you know, Edinburgh and the you know British Museum, right? Mm -hmm. um, so you know, Coral Triganini and her remains are under a kind of repatriation active fight while I'm trying to get a permit signed off by a population that legally doesn't exist, <laughs> right? So it was completely nuts, right? But the whole thing with Tasmania and its weird dark history as you know, a kind of pretty gorgeous but really bizarre, ugly 19th century space, right? It's very dark history. Is that, you know, you scratch the surface of any Tasmanian, any Tasmanian, you know, white, black, doesn't matter, any Tasmanian, it's like three generations Tasmanian, 
They will always have a convict ancestor, and they will always have an Aboriginal ancestor, and nobody wants to talk about it, right? <laughs> I mean, they're starting to go through a kind of reclaiming of that history now, right? But it is very much something that is unfolding actively while I've been kind of working here. And since I'm the American, and I can fit with my foreign accent, I get to ask the complicated questions because nobody gets offended. Be the ethnographer and go, oh, why did you just say that? Please explain it to me because I'm an idiot. And then people feel comfortable talking about stuff because I come in with no baggage, you know. So in some ways, I guess I've got the privileged outsider-insider kind of perspective. I don't know. Does that answer your question? Absolutely. Thank you. This is Taylor again. Um, sort of off of that, in your Horizons paper, you take on this question of thinking globally from, um, you know, how it works for your work theoretically. Um, and I'm wondering if it has also changed the way that you um, work in the field or the way that you think about these sites as heritage sites as well. How I think about, sorry, I didn't catch that. What, when did you, the, how yeah. I think about what? Um, how you think about these sites as heritage sites or how you're working in the field, this concept of globalization, if it's impacted. Absolutely, totally, totally, yes, absolutely. The last project I directed here, because over a 25-year period, I've been trying to stick together a, a whole bunch of different, you know, men, women, children. I'm trying to write a more comprehensive, comparative sensitive sites. So my last excavation project, I ran with the Fine Arts Department at the University of Tasmania. So part of what we had was local fine artists, like sculptures, right? They came and they did landscape installations. And, um, you know, they came and did amazing kind of large, you know, we were featured in the um, Fine Arts, uh, 10 Days on the Island is like an um, uh, annual big arts festival in Tasmania. So my site and the archaeology of my site was featured there, not because of my work, but because of all of these. We had about 15 artists who came and did art installation pieces on the archaeology that we were doing, which was really weird because um, I've never looked at a Munsell soil chart quite the same way. So they kept, it was great because they kept asking me questions about things that I, you know, take for granted. And I was at the same time the director, but also the subject of their art pieces. So it was really, yeah, amazing. And the work they came up with made me think about my public site in a totally different way. So these people are descendants, and that was part of why they were there doing this whole different kind of fine art. You know, we had like, you know, people writing, composing music about the site, you know, or doing really interesting things with photographs that they were then mounting, you know. Um, onto the site as part of, you know, the arts kind of um, installation walking tour around the site I had excavated. So, yeah, it was interesting to think about archaeology. And again, this is probably totally rooting on the air. I was deeply <laughs> inspired by her, obviously. But like that whole, you know, like me as our performance is a piece of art that holds meaning to descendant communities, you know, in completely different ways than I ever, ever would have thought about, you know, as a bloody archaeologist sitting there dusting off bits of soil. Well, thank you so much, Eleanor. We're out of time, but it was such a pleasure speaking with you tonight. Thank you for joining us from across the globe. Thank you to our science <laughs> faculty and graduate students for participating in our podcast. And for those of you out there tuned into Radio Science, thanks for listening. <laughs> You've been listening to Radio Siams, a podcast of the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies.
Our next podcast, which will be recorded and posted in September, will be with Claudia Brittenham from the University of Chicago. Radio Science is produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. Thanks for listening.